Hello and welcome, I'm Sam Delaney and this is The Reset, a mental health podcast without all the usual bollocks. My guest this week is American chat show superstar Seth Meyers. Seth was a lead writer and star on Saturday Night Live before landing his own daily show on NBC called Late Night with Seth Meyers, in which he has interviewed presidents, movie stars, pretty much everyone you've ever heard of. So, what's he doing talking to me on this podcast? Well, it turns out Seth is, like me, a big West Ham fan. Really? He listened to a West Ham podcast that I host called You Irons, and he liked it and got in touch with me just to chat football. Weird, right? Weird, yes, but brilliant. I'd heard him open up a bit before about aspects of his mental health, so I thought I'd ask him on the reset to dig a bit deeper. And he agreed. We talked about how sport can have an impact on our mental health, about how we need to stop comparing ourselves to our peers all the time, and about the healing powers of the 2007 rom-com movie, Music and Lyrics. I hope you enjoy the show. Seth, welcome to the reset. It is very nice to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Seth, um, delighted to talk to you today. Um, obviously, big fan of your work. Uh, we've bonded over our shared love of West Ham, which many people find quite improbable when they find that out about you um, and think it must be just one of those strange made-up Wikipedia facts. But it's uh, how, how we kind of met via social media. Um, before we get started, tell us a bit about that and what part West Ham plays in your life. Yes, well, I should start. That's 100% how we know each other. Mm. I got to know your voice. I got to know your co-host, Shane's voice, uh, through your podcast on The Athletic. And it was the first time in my life I've been a West Ham fan for almost 20 uh, plus years. I've never had a podcast before where I felt as engaged with the team. So I owe you a, a great deal of gratitude for that. I was in London doing a show, I think, in 2000 at the Soho Theater and I did not have a British club that I rooted for. I went to the ticket agents. I had three choices, which was which were, I should say, West Ham, Charlton Athletic and Arsenal. <laughs> and going to be honest, there were some lean years <laughs> where I definitely wished I'd gone to the Arsenal game. But yeah. I stuck with them. And this last year was as, as good as it got. Yeah. It, it may well be the as good as it's ever going to get, but we, we shall see. <laughs> I don't know about you, but it makes a big difference to my, I mean, this is a mental health podcast, as you know, and, uh, you know, joking aside, it, it really makes a huge difference to my mood and my state of mind when West Ham are doing well. I think that's very interesting that you're talking about, you know, talking about the mental health of sports. I'm glad you brought it up because I've been doing this bit in stand-up recently about trying to decide if it has been a some positive or some negative in my life, because I have two young boys and they're reaching the age where it's time to decide, do I impart this love of sport on them? And I'm just not sure because I have had some real highs. I'm my football team is the Pittsburgh Steelers. They won a couple championships in my lifetime. I was a Boston Red Sox fan who were, you know, the long, uh, you know, a long, torturous history that then in 2004 ended in the best possible way. So I've had these highs, but that ability to have a weekend ruined by sports is a tough, it's a tough sell. I mean, I, I'll never be able to shake it, but I, I, I know you have kids and it seems like they're in on it, right? They're sports fans now. My, my son, big sports fan. My daughter used to come to Upton Park. So she's proper old school West Ham. And now she's a bit, she's a teenager now and a bit like, yeah, whatever. It's very interesting too, because my wife, no man in her family ever cared about sports. 
so it was very jarring for her because she was a 30 year old woman who was very thrown by the fact that there was a man who cared this deeply for something out of his control. And her dad loves music. And I realized why he's such a happier person than me, which is I, if I go to a sports game, I will either be happy or I will come back worse. Whereas when he goes and sees an Eagles concert, he knows he's going to hear Hotel California, right? Like, there's no outcome that can be as devastating as your team losing. Uh, 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 sports is a huge emotional gamble, a huge and mad emotional gamble. And one that you, you know, there's that weird thing too of even when it goes great and your team wins, do you ever have that moment <laughs> where it dawns on you that you actually haven't done anything? <laughs> you, you know, when oh, yeah. you're walking yeah, yeah. around town so happy and then you're like, wait, this is children compared to us that are on the field. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's it's like it is slightly embarrassing. I used to be a big drinker, and I think that I drank a lot of football. And I look back, and I think it's partly because I didn't know what to do with the emotion I was feeling. Mm-hmm. Even when we won, the natural thing to do seemed to be, "Well, we've won. Let's get drunk." Anything now I look back six years sober and I think to myself, what, where was the connection between those two things? And I think it was because you were full of an unfocused emotion because, yes, you were happy that your team had won. But as you say, it had nothing to do with you. You're just mm-hmm. you leave the stadium. and You're just some guy. Members of the public passing the street don't know that you support that team or that you just had victory. There's a lot of confusing and big emotions. I think that's why people get drunk at football. I think. They need to numb out the confusing emotion, overwhelming emotion of it all. I don't know about you as well, but I think as I get older, what I love most about sports is the anticipation. There's a thing Mm. you can put on your Google calendar that you look forward to. And because you have nothing to do with the outcome, you don't have to worry that you're not prepared enough. Uh, You know, there's no internal stress. That's, I, you know, for example, I loved knowing after West Ham won, that I would listen to a podcast with, you know, at that point, two perfect strangers who would just be in a good mood talking about a thing that also had put me in a good mood. And so that half hour was more, far more enjoyable than the two hours of actually watching the game. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Looking forward to something and looking back on something. But I mean, you know, God, watching England, I know you're a Holland fan because you used to live there. uh, So the Euros didn't go so great for you. But I found watching England in the in those final knockout games in the Euros, not enjoyable. I was sitting at home, we were texting friends and all of my friends were saying, I don't actually enjoy this. I would rather not be watching it, but obviously I can't not watch it. But this is not a happy experience right now because the stakes are too high. And you, you just feel, and there were certain West Ham games last season where I felt like that as well. I had a, a brunch with my uh, wife and two boys. And again, I think there's something very, depressing about when you can tie a family memory to what was happening, you know, for me across an ocean. And when we sat down to brunch, we were up three, nothing against Arsenal. And, you know, Uh, the the bloody Mary comes and you just decide to check the phone. You know, there's only 30 minutes left. It's three, one. And then, you know, your eggs come and you take it and it's three, two. And now you're not enjoying it because you're dreading it. And then sure enough, it happens. And again, I feel as though no matter yeah. how much you try to internalize it, the people around you can feel that your energy changed. And then, of course, you would be ashamed to tell them why. So it's 
I the the classic. My wife remembers a lot of bad West Ham results because from right back from before we had kids, and she always says that the the benchmark for her was there was a time when West Ham had been the the short stories we'd been three two up against Tottenham with one minute of injury time left on the clock, and they somehow came back and beat us four three, and it was the most terrible you know heart ripped out of the body thing ever to be that close against your main rivals. And that night we were supposed to be going to cinema and I can't remember what we were going to see, but it was probably something cool and independent and dark that we were going to in our local art cinema before we had kids and we used to do things like that. And I said, I can't handle that. I want to go to the multiplex and I want to watch music and lyrics, which was a romantic comedy with Hugh Grant and Drew Barrymore. (laughs) Which is the opposite of the sort of film yep. I usually watch. And she still, this is like 15 years ago. She still uses that as the benchmark. She says, How bad is it? And I go, It's bad. And she goes, Is it music and lyrics bad? <laughs> no, 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 I'm not yet <laughs> at that point where you have to actually go and see a Hugh Grant rom com because you can't handle anything remotely negative. I think um, this, is a, this is a true story during in the, like, the first six months of the pandemic. My wife and I just watched, we found for a very similar reason that we wanted to watch romantic comedies. Mm. And I had never seen, and she had never seen music and lyrics. And so we watched it, you know, May of 2000, Mm. I guess it was, or or 2019 now. And it's so funny to think that uh, what caused you to watch Music and lyrics was a West Ham loss. And what caused me to watch it was a worldwide pandemic. And we watched it for the same reason. But yeah, maybe, I mean, it's a good movie. Maybe it needs to make a major comeback and be rediscovered (laughs) as a a classic. Let me ask you about your career and and how that relates to, to your mental health and things like that. I've heard you say before that when you first kind of made the step up. Yes. To, you know, big time, mainstream, Saturday Night Live. There was, for the first couple of years, I think, a lot of anxiety surrounding that, despite your kind of obviously extremely confident on-screen persona. How, how bad was that? How much of a struggle was it? Well, it was a lot. I mean, one thing is you get a job like that, and for a very, very brief moment, you allow yourself to think you've arrived. You know, what an accomplishment to get sort of tapped on the shoulder by someone like Lauren Michaels, who runs SNL, how could a guy who's seen so much talent over the years be wrong about you? And then you sort of show up and, and within a week, because they have a headshot of everybody who ever worked on the show on the wall, you know, the first day you're there, you just sort of look at Will Ferrell and Eddie Murphy and Mike Myers. And then after a week, you start looking and you realize there's a lot of people you don't remember that well because they were only here a short period of time. And it was really hard because as with anybody who goes up to the next level, you know, then everyone around you is at the next level. And, you know, I was a improviser in Chicago and, and obviously I felt pretty confident about the work I was doing there. But now all of a sudden you're sharing the stage with people who uh, are some of the funniest people who've ever walked the earth and they've been doing it longer than you. And so it was a real uh, struggle. It was a ton, a ton of uh, self-doubt. I think, you know, uh, and I wish I talked more to people as I was going through it, because I think a lot of us, now that I'm close with them, now that we're on the other side of it, we always talk about the fact that we all had imposter syndrome. We all thought everybody deserved to be there, but us. And yeah, it was, I mean, it was as absolutely 
for me, uh, as far as depression, it was the worst time in my life. Like those, those first three, four years, you know, when you, when you started SNL, you're kind of on a year to year deal. And so you're aware that you're being evaluated constantly. And so when you know that other people are evaluating you, it just makes natural sense for you to evaluate yourself. And, you know, there'd be weeks at SNL in the early years where, you know, I'd have one line uh, for a week or I'd be completely shut out for a week. And you think to yourself, well, nobody, the people who pay me can't think this is what they're getting their money's worth right now. Um, The thing that sort of saved me and and, uh, legitimately, I think, bought me more time is I had a, a... background eight skills as a writer. And so even though as a cast member, those early years of SNL, I think it was earning my keep more by writing and, and writing sort of kept me alive. And, and then by the time, you know, I got more confident and, and a little bit more accomplished as a performer, um, you know, the writing had bought me the time to, to be in a safe place. Because presumably, you know, doing what you do, so much of your performance hinges on, on a sense of self-confidence. So it must be a vicious circle. Right. I mean, it must be. Is it a self-fulfilling prophecy? Yeah. Do you feel looking back that your performances did suffer precisely because you were full of self-doubt? Yeah. Comedy is fascinating because um, you have to I think you have to do a lot of work to make something funny before you do it. You have to write. You have to think about it a lot. You have to throw stuff out. You have to retool it. And yet it only works with the audience if it looks effortless. You know, it's not opera where you pay the money to watch the, you know, you want to watch the opera singer, you want to see the neck muscles bulge. It's not sports where you want to see the sweat dripping off their face. You want to watch someone say things as though they've saying it for the first time and they know it's funny and they don't care that you think it's funny or not. You know, they'd love for you to think it's funny, but ultimately their judgment's more important. Your judgment as the performer is more important. And so it's really weird. Like I'm about, you know, tonight in, in New York, I'm going to do a set in New York. I haven't, you know, just because of the pandemic and stuff, I haven't been doing as much stand-up as I used to. And I know this now, you, you know, I've been doing this a long time. I know that when I walk out on stage, like the most important thing is how I present myself. Like before any joke it comes out of my mouth, it's like the audience wants to see me and they want to judge. Oh, we're in, we're in a safe pair of hands tonight. This guy's fine. And, and we're going to enjoy our time with him. And can you fake that when you're having a bad day mentally? Is it possible to fake that kind of persona and appearance, reassuring appearance? I think I've certainly had to fake it at really high stakes events. I hosted the Golden Globes a few years ago. And, you know, that's an event where you walk out on stage and you know that the front row of a very well-lit audience. You know, sometimes when you do stand-up, they'll say, do you want lights on the audience? I always say no. I don't want to see facial expressions. But you know, at an award show, everybody's lit because the camera's going to cut to them. So you walk out and the front row is Steven Spielberg, Tom Hanks, and Oprah Winfrey. (laughs) Now, as someone telling jokes, you're too curious not to see if they're working with Oprah, (laughs) right? You can't not look. And... So there's no way, you know, I think you'd have to be a sociopath to turn off the part of you that would get nervous for something like that. And so that's this weird thing of huge butterflies right before you're walking out. And I think butterflies can be really helpful too. I, you know, I think it helps you focus, but you are faking when you, when I walk out and 
you know, start by saying it's so great to be here tonight. You know, part of me, of course, half of me doesn't want to be here. Yeah. <laughs> you know, half of me wants to be anywhere else. So I do think the longer you do this, you can fake it a bit more. But I will also say the nice thing about doing a show every night is it, I'm not faking it. It's very, I feel very, uh, and again, this is just the benefit of all the reps I've gotten in my career. Like you walk out every night. I don't sweat every joke. I don't think people who are watching a talk show that airs at uh, 1230 at night want to see somebody who's white knuckling joke to joke. They just want to see somebody who's enjoying telling the jokes they like. And so that's gotten very easy. So it's just the high stakes gigs where you sort of are fighting it. Separate to that, have you just done work on yourself in terms of the way that you see life and, and the, the ambitions that you have and, and the way you just cope with, with that life's ups and downs? Yeah, I mean, I, I was really lucky to work with this uh, wonderful comedian and actress who you probably know named Amy Poehler. And we yeah. started at the same time at SNL and Amy had a lot of confidence. And one thing that I feel like everybody... Uh, on a big cash show like SNL does is you uh, you judge yourself against your peers. And the thing Amy used to always say is compare and despair, which is true. You know, you can always find someone uh, who's doing better than you are. And the worst thing you can do is, is lay your accomplishments up against theirs and, and feel bad about where you come up short. And though the thing, you know, even though I was deeply depressed for a lot of that time at SNL, the part that I feel shame about is not being depressed because I couldn't stop that. It's the years where I was jealous of people who are now, you know, some of my best friends in the world. Like, and even though I don't think I was outward with that uh, jealousy, like I'm very aware of this sort of internal pettiness I had about my friends succeeding. And that has been, that so that's the part I had to work on the most, and I feel you know lucky enough to be on the other side of, and and again like my this group of friends that I came up with, they will they're so talented they constantly give you reasons to be jealous of them, and mm. it's been a real journey to get to a place of oh that's that has nothing to do uh, with me, and I talked to an actor once about. Uh, jealousy one of my favorite actors and he said that he was in a play once and the other star of the show was getting bigger laughs than him and, and he said to the director like i know this is bad but i i'm you know i every time i go on stage i'm jealous about how much better my co-lead is doing and the director said do you think if they were even a little bit worse you would be better and that's a thing i try to remember as well that like people other people being worse doesn't mean that you then are better you're going to be exactly as good as you are um, independent of what's going on around you. I suppose what I'm interested in is, do you think that one of the only reasons or one of the biggest reasons that you've got over that though, which is such a universal thing, is because you have been very successful. I, <laughs> do you yes. know what I mean? So now people are jealous of you. <laughs> I do. Yes. I think I, <laughs> if I want to go into a dark place, I sometimes think, would I have made, <laughs> you know, have I, would I have made this journey of self-improvement uh, without the assist of a lot of things going my way. And that, of course, yeah. is, is the hard question to ask. But yes, it is. Uh, and by the way, no one, um, uh, you certainly, it would be a, a hard thing for me to tell people like, look, it's all going to be okay one day. Everybody gets their own yeah. talk show. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, You'll I host the Golden Globes in the end. 
Yeah, it all ends that. It all ends the same for everybody. I did have this moment the other day. I was walking down the street and I passed the apartment I lived in uh, back when I was single. And, you know, is that SNL? And, you know, this is back in the uh, times where things were not, you know, stable. Uh, you know, I didn't know what was going to happen next. And, you know, now for someone in show business, my life could not be, I, I'm as stable of show business job as you can have. There just aren't many of them. And especially, you know, even movie stars who never stop working, they also have to travel and they have to go to different places and now they're on location and their kids are in school. And so this is a really nice deal for me. And, and yet uh, with all that, I was walking by my old apartment and I had a pang of like longing for that time. And I was like, I think the moral is, uh, being like, even when you're old and happy, you still miss being young and sad. <laughs> so like, I think like in the, <laughs> you know what I mean? Where you're like, Oh, like, and I know you can't say that to people, but you do. I would just want to say to young people, I'm like, and again, you know, it's so hard when people are dealing with depression. Cause I, I do think that I dealt with it on a lighter level and it was all like sort of professionally based, but you do want to say to people like it, there is such a, we can be really hard, but my God, being young, there's a real value to it and you'll appreciate it later. And I know hearing an old person say that is very cliche, but um, just embrace it. Just lastly, uh, I want to ask you about being honest and open, which clearly you are. Uh, but I know that only in, the, in this country, it's only in the last sort of, you know, few years that I've been very open about my struggles and it makes such a huge difference to me and I hope to other people. What was your journey like with that? Did you used to hide it and be ashamed of these sorts of feelings and, and, and struggles? I definitely, I think there was a sense, especially, you know, again, I was there, you know, sometimes people bust on me because I, I sort of glory day my time at SNL, but I was there for 12 and a half years. So that was like a huge chunk of my life. And it was certainly the most tumultuous uh, chunk of my life. And, you know, I had friends there that I could sort of offline my issues with, but I didn't tell everybody. I think there was a sense of nobody. It was not a place that um, celebrated public vulnerability. And I sort of offlined with a couple of friends who at some point, one of them, a really dear friend of mine said, I do think you need to talk to someone who does this professionally, which I did. And I will say that I grew up never thinking that I would go, you know, talk to a therapist. And uh, but then I did for, you know, about six years. And I don't think I would have made it through without that. You don't do it anymore. I don't do it anymore. Um, and it wasn't a, like an active decision to stop. It was more, it just got harder to schedule. And then one day I realized that I would have less to say when I went in there. And so I sort of took that mm. as a sign. Like, I don't think you should ever, like in the, in the days where it was value, like I like, you know, I kicked the door in and just started talking, you know, I, I needed it so desperately and I needed to unload things so desperately. And then as I need, as I needed that last, and, and, you know, one thing is I'm really lucky to be in a relationship uh, with someone who I can talk to about things. And, you know, this is a time in my life before I met my wife. Oh, and so, you know, she, she fills that role in a lot of ways too. Do you think your industry is in the best place? Do you think younger people who are now in the position you were in when you were younger might find it easier to get through moments like that. And, and it, it might not be so hard to show vulnerability. 
Oh yeah. I think it's been a complete sea change and, and certainly, you know, the amount, you know, again, social media, as you correctly pointed out, can be a real cesspool, but I think when used well, seeing people with profiles, seeing people use the platform to share that even at someone who is, uh, you know, on the surface, very successful and looks very happy is, is going through things. I, I think that that was far less available 20 years ago. Well, it's wonderful, I think, um, that everyone uh, is, is being so open and vulnerable now. And it's great to hear you um, being so honest and open. And I'm privileged that you've spent the time doing that with me today, Seth. Thanks ever so much. Thanks, you know, and I just want to stress that had um, had West Ham finished outside the top six, this would have been a totally different interview. Seth, have a great day. I really appreciate your time. All the best, Sam. There you go, Seth Myers. What an honest and self-aware bloke. I love his insights, particularly to jealousy and comparisons. We could all do with taking the advice of his co-star, Amy Poehler. Comparing is despairing. Cheers, Amy. And cheers, Seth, too. The bad news that I couldn't bring myself to actually tell Seth during our chat is that my podcast, You Irons, has actually been cancelled for next season. Oh, well, shit happens. I just hope Seth can cope without me. Remember to subscribe to The Reset at samdelaney.substack.com and tell your mates about it. It's great. All the best. And remember, don't let the dickheads get you down. <laughs>